Last week we talked about the apostles in that upper room. Uh, there's 120 of them crammed into this room. We don't know how big it is, but we do know there's 120 because that's what the scriptures tell us. They're uh, made up of 11 disciples, original disciples. There's men, women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, all the, Joanna, all these women who had followed Jesus, and um, a whole slew of other people, 120 in total. And we talked about last week that they're, they're going through a lot of different emotions. There's excitement, there's worry, there's wonder. They've been told by Jesus repeatedly that something great's gonna happen. He said, don't leave Jerusalem, go and wait. Wait for what? Well, wait for what the Father has promised, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Advocate. Um, something's gonna happen. So they're in this room and they're waiting. That's kind of how we set it up last week. And my uh, encouragement to you was to understand that these men, these women, are no different than you and I. They're not really prepared for what's about to happen. They don't really deserve what's about to happen. This is a work of God. And God has told um, his people through Jesus Christ to go and wait. Now, as we get into chapter uh, one this morning of Acts I know that most of us are very familiar with these events in chapter one and chapter two. And so what I wanna do before we get into it, I want us to um, come at it with new eyes, fresh eyes, uh, put aside as best you can your preconceived notions of what happened in that room. And let's look at it like we've never seen it before. But before we do that, I wanna kinda talk about who this guy is, Luke, that wrote this book. and. Why are we even reading what he wrote? Why should we? Well, we see in chapter one, he says, in my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach. So it's real clear that he's written a previous book. Now, we know that he wrote the Gospel of Luke. And so the Gospel of Luke is considered chapter one of a two-part series. Acts is chapter two. And he says here that I wrote in my first book what Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up into heaven. It ends, the Gospel of Luke, with the ascension of Jesus. And we know from last week, Acts chapter one starts out with the ascension of Jesus and then them going into Jerusalem to wait. So book one is the Gospel of Luke. Book two is the Acts of the Apostles. So his first book, Gospel of Luke, he says, I told you, Theophilus. Who is Theophilus? We don't know. Uh, we really don't know. I mean, he's mentioned in Acts chapter one, but we really don't know who he is. Um, there's a lot of conjecture, but it's just conjecture because the scriptures don't tell us. We do know he's got a Greek name, and that indicates that he's probably Greek. Uh, he's probably a Gentile. He's a believer. And we get that from the fact that, he, that Luke is uh, giving him this information so that he will continue to believe what he already believes. It's more proof. So he's a believer. And inter interestingly enough, Luke addresses both of the books, chapter 1, the Gospel of Luke, chapter two, the book of Acts, to the same guy. So let's go backwards. 
Luke chapter 1. <clears throat> he says, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. So Luke starts out the gospel of Luke with this awareness of an admission that he's not the first one to attempt to write about all the things that Jesus had done. Others had done it before him. Most um, scholars believe that the gospel of Mark had already come out before he wrote the gospel of Luke. So he had that as a reference. But he's saying, I'm gonna add to this compendium of books about the life of Jesus. He says, they used eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. And having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus. So here he is again. We don't know who he is, but he's important enough that Luke wrote two, two books to this guy. And I think it's interesting to note that he writes both of these books to a single individual. Now we know because um, we believe that the scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit, that God had intended these to go far further than just Theophilus. And we got, we've got them. We get to read them. But they were written to this guy. He, um, he's called honorable, and that term in the Greek is really a designation of authority, um, hierarchy, honor. So there's some who believe he was probably in the government or uh, had some kind of a position of power. Again, we don't know. It's all conjecture. But he wrote to this guy, and he wrote to him to help him understand the things of God so that you be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. So this guy, Theophilus, was a believer. He had been taught certain things about Christ. And now here's Luke saying, I'm gonna help you understand even more. And he's gonna go past the uh, incarnation of Christ, ministry of Christ, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And he's gonna tell the story of how the church got started, those early days of the spread of the church. Now, why Luke? <clears throat> Why should we care? Why should we listen? Who was this guy? And why was he qualified? <clears throat> well, again, we don't know a whole lot about Luke, but we do know these things that number one, he's a physician. How do we know that? Because uh, Paul refers to him as Luke the physician. Now, a physician then is not the same as a physician now, but he was a doctor of sorts. He, he cared for people. He treated people. Um, I think that he, he cared for Paul because he was a traveling companion of Paul. And he's, he's a Greek because of his name. He's also Greek. Um, he somehow got to know Paul and he ended up traveling with him on most of his missionary journeys. So when we get into the later chapters of Acts and we see him talking about these journeys that Paul was on, he was there. He's kind of an invisible partner on these trips. And he's writing in the kind of third person, never talks about himself, never uses his name, but he's there. And I think he kept Paul alive. Uh, over in 1 Corinthians, Paul gives this kind of litany of things that had happened to him. I was beaten. I was stoned. I was whipped. I was persecuted. I was shipwrecked. And he goes through this list that just kind of wears you out. I think Luke kept him alive. I think Luke treated him. I think Luke was there to treat him after these things. And so they became close, close companions and friends. I think he used uh, other sources like the Gospel of Mark. 
I think he interviewed uh, the disciples because they were all still alive and got, because he was not a disciple. He did not travel with Jesus. He uh, was someone who came along a little bit later and then went and interviewed the disciples to find out all these things that happened in those early days. But for much of what we have in the book of Acts, he was there. He was a participant. And so he's a, a, he's a historian, a doctor by trade, historian by kind of habit or love, first love. I love history. Um, he's a historian. And so he's very detailed and he goes through all this effort to put together this treatise on the early days of the church for Theophilus. So that's the guy writing to Theophilus and ultimately to you and I. So he goes on and he says, I wrote this first book, now I'm writing this book, Theophilus. And the first one, I wrote about everything that Jesus began to do and teach. There are those who think it ought to be called the Acts of Jesus. That Luke is the first Acts of Jesus, Acts are the second Acts of Jesus. Through the Holy Spirit in the Apostles. But most have come to know it as the Acts of the Apostles. So he says, I wrote my first book about everything he did until he was taken up. I wrote about the 40 days in which he appeared to the disciples. And we talked about last week that it's interesting that it took 40 days to convince the disciples I'm alive. Remember we said last week that he shows up in the room miraculously. They've already been told he's alive by the women. They've already been told he's alive by the two who saw him on the road to Emmaus. And then he shows up in the room, surprises them all, and then they say he's a ghost. So he starts to eat. He goes, what do you got to eat? And they give him some fish and he eats. Why did he eat? Well, he might've been hungry, but I think he ate to prove to him, I'm not a ghost, I'm alive. Took 40 days for him to convince these guys, I really am alive. This is not a figment of your imagination. And during that time, he did, uh, he talked to them. He talked about the kingdom. He talked about what's gonna happen. He told them repeatedly to go and wait. And he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And it's interesting that it took that long. We can get kind of cocky and go, ah, I'd have believed it the first time. Probably not. You gotta keep in mind, they watched this guy get beaten, bloody, beyond recognition, nailed to a cross, hung there for hour after hour, had a, a spear thrust through his side, died, buried, and now he appears. You would have a hard time with that too. And they did. But he finally proved to them that I am who I am. And it says, the apostles returned to Jerusalem, just like he said. And when they arrived, they went into this room, this upstairs room, and there they were staying, waiting, praying, wondering, probably worrying, questioning, what's going to happen? What's it going to be like? How's this all going to shake out? So we come to Acts chapter two. <clears throat> we're really familiar with this story, probably too familiar with it. And it's become rote. It's become something we just kind of blow through. Oh yeah, that's when the Holy Spirit came. And we don't even think about it much anymore. 
But it says, on the day of Pentecost, all the believers, that 120 people, men and women, were gathered together in one place. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm. It filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages. Now we read that and it's just like, <sighs> yeah. That's when the Holy Spirit came, yeah. I mean, think about this. <clears throat> think about what it was like to be there. You've been waiting a matter of days. You don't know what's coming. <clears throat> then all of a sudden, <clears throat> I apologize. All of a sudden, <clears throat> the first thing you hear is this roaring wind. Now, I've never, I've seen a tornado. I've never been in one. I've never really heard one because when I saw one, we were in a car fleeing from it. But I've heard that it sounds pretty wild. It's like a freight train. It's loud. That's what they hear. They hear the wind. And then all of a sudden, above everybody's head, pops a flame of fire. What if that happened in here? What would most of us do? Well, I think most of us would be trying to put them out. Hey, your head's on fire. We were smacking each other, you know, throwing water, tea. They did not know this was going to happen. And suddenly it does. It's a fantastic experience. And then all of a sudden, they all start speaking in languages they don't know. Pretty bizarre. Pretty chaotic. Pretty strange. Everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit. So you got this roaring wind, and then you got flames. Now, again, we're so familiar with this story, I don't think we ever stop and go, why? Why did God do it this way? And why languages? Now, we know in this case, they're speaking languages because the text tells us. But here's, here's some artist's attempt at, at trying to show what this looked like. And every one of you we look at, look at are all kind of lame because I don't think we can gather what this really looked like. But here they are, they're all kind of sitting down. I don't think anybody was sitting down. I think they're probably running around, they're probably shocked, they're scared, trying to run from the flame. I think some of them are looking around and make sure, hey, do I have one of those? Peter's probably arguing that mine's bigger than yours. You know, he had a case of flame envy. Um, but it's, it's, it's crazy what's going on in this room. And I have to ask, why is it going on? See, God could have done this any of a thousand ways, and he chose to do it this way, and we just read it and move on. Wind, flames, tongues. See, he said, you're going to be baptized with what? With the Holy Spirit. This is what he told them before he left them. But again, my, my contention is when he said it, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. They didn't know what that meant. And even today, 2,000 years later, we're not really sure what it means to be baptized with the Spirit. And among Christians today, there's a lot of debate and argument about what it means to be baptized by the Spirit. And depending on your particular denomination, it may look different. 
than it does in another. So what is he talking about? Why was this necessary? Why couldn't he have just poured out the spirit, get to work, you got a job to do, let's get busy. No, it was marked by something pretty spectacular. What's the significance of all of this? Well, back in Acts chapter one, verses four and five, he said, don't leave Jerusalem until the father sends you the gift he promised, the Holy Spirit. John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a really interesting uh, statement from the lips of Jesus, and it's one I've never really noticed or looked at in depth. Because he, he all out of the blue, mentions John the Baptist. John baptized with water, but you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Every one of those, those disciples, because they're Jews, would understand the baptism of John. John was the precursor to Jesus. He came and told about the coming of the Messiah. He preached repentance. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's coming. It's get ready. You remember he was the guy out in the wilderness and he was baptizing people. So why does Jesus bring up John in this moment? And I think this is pretty significant because he compares, he juxtaposed the baptism of John with the baptism of the spirit that's about to come. And I believe every one of those disciples in that room had been baptized, if not by John, they had received the baptism of repentance that John offered. They had been baptized. They had gone through that experience, which means they had repented. Well, we got to really understand what's going on and what repentance really means there. So back in Luke chapter three, remember that's, chap that's the first book of this two-part series. We read this. It was now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor. Pontius the Pilate was governor of Judea. Herod Antipas was ruler over Galilee. His brother Philip was ruler over Arteria and Trachoninus. Why are these names even important? Because they set a date and they also prove historically when these things happen. And looks very detailed in giving us this information. He says, Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests. At this time, a message from God came to John, son of Zechariah, who was living in the wilderness, John the Baptist, cousin of Jesus. Then John went from place to place on both sides of the Jordan River, preaching, and this is important, that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. So what you have here is an explanation of everything that John had done in the wilderness. He was preaching the coming of the kingdom. He was talking about Jesus coming, but he was baptizing to prove what? That people he was baptizing had repented of their sins and turned to God. That's important. That's significant. He was telling people, you have got to turn from your sin back to God. Why? Because the kingdom's coming. You better get your act together. And the other thing is that you've got to change your behavior. Now, here's what's never jumped out at me in studying this passage. <clears throat> John's basically telling people, change the way you live. Stop doing what you're doing and change the way you live. 
How has that worked for anybody in this room? You have got to be a better dad. You gotta be a better husband. I've been to enough marriage enrichment seminars to know that I can't make myself a better husband. I can do it for about a week. Because you go to those seminars and they tell you, hey, you gotta have a date night. Oh, okay. Okay. That at least involves a meal. You, you gotta communicate more. Communic what do you mean, like talk? Yeah, talk. Oh, okay. You gotta do this, you gotta do that. And, and they beat you senseless. You ever been, every marriage enrichment seminar, it, it works this way. You meet together and it's all great. It's wonderful, it's encouraging. Then they split you up. Wives go here, men go here. And then some guy comes in the room and just for like hours just beats you senseless. You're, you're a lousy husband. You're, you know, just, here's all the things you need to do. And you walk out guilty, guilt-ridden, and convicted, and I'm gonna do a better job. And it lasts a week, at least for me. The date night goes out, the communication stops, and I go back to being the same jerk I always was and wonder why she's got a problem. <laughs> See, he's telling them, You've got to turn from your sins back to God and you got to change your behavior. How do I know that? The crowd asked him, what should we do? Isn't that what we always do? We love sermons that say, here's what you need to do. Five steps to a happy life. Three keys to being a better husband. Seven steps to being a better father. We love those things because it at least makes us feel like we're doing something. It never works, but it makes us feel better. So they say, what do we do? John replied, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. Hmm, okay. Thankfully, I only have one shirt. Then he says, if you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Really? Okay. If that's what I need to do, I'll do that. Then the corrupt tax collectors come to him, and they want to be baptized. They say, teacher, what, 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 what should we do? And he says, Collect no more taxes than the government requires. Ooh, that's kind of my job. And if I don't, I won't make any money. But if that's what it takes, I'll do it. Well, then how about this? Soldiers, they show up. What do we do? Don't extort money or make false accusations. Really? That's kind of the perks of my job. Extorting money, making people do things for me. But you're telling me that I got to stop. Okay. Because I want to be baptized. And then he says, oh yeah, and be content with your pay. We couldn't even pull that off. Most of us aren't content. We're content for like the two weeks after we get a raise. And then we need want more. Or we're content until we find out our business partner got a raise. But these are the things he tells them. See, they say, what do we do? Do these things. It's all about doing. It's all about effort. And everyone was expecting the Messiah to come soon and they were eager to know whether John was a Messiah. But then John says, listen, listen, you gotta understand this. I baptize you with water, oops. I baptize you with water, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, Jesus. So much greater that I'm not even worthy to be his slave or untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with what? Fire. 
Now, when John said this, Jesus had not yet been baptized. He hadn't started his ministry. He most certainly hadn't died. He hadn't been resurrected. He hadn't ascended. This is early on before Jesus began his ministry. And yet, what do we have him saying? Jesus is coming. Someone is coming greater than I, and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Did any of those people who heard John understand this? <clears throat> Didn't even know who Jesus was yet. Didn't know about the Holy Spirit. Didn't understand what that meant. Most certainly didn't understand what baptism with fire meant. And yet he's prefacing what's about to happen three plus years later. See, John's baptism, and this is what jumps out at me. John's baptism was based on what? Their verbal expressed intent that I'm going to stop doing what I used to do. I'm going to start doing good things. It's all about works. It's all about effort. How successful would they be? Not at all. Maybe for a limited time, but not for a long term. See, there's something missing. What's missing? He has told us the baptism of the Holy Spirit. See, it reminds me of when we did the study on the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus preached that sermon to a whole group of Jews standing there and he said, here's what it looks like, <clears throat> looks like to live in the kingdom of God. None of them were yet believers. None of them were yet part of the kingdom of God. And everything he said was impossible because apart from Christ and without the filling of the Holy Spirit, none of us can pull it off. So John's baptism was just signifying that you say you're gonna change your behavior and you repent, but it would never really change their behavior. But the baptism Jesus was offering and that the disciples in that upper room received was going to make change behavior possible. For the first time in their lives, they would really be able to live truly repentant lives. So John's baptism is basically you saying, I repent. Okay, you're baptized. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is you are now empowered. See, that's why this chapter is so important, guys. That's why we shouldn't blow through it. That's why we shouldn't treat it lightly. It's because at this moment in history, in that upper room, when these things happen, suddenly men and women had for the first time in their lives the power to live godly lives. Somebody asked me uh, Tuesday night at the other campus when I taught this lesson, Hey, didn't, didn't some other like Old Testament people get the Holy Spirit? Yeah, David did, temporarily, and then it went away. Even King Saul got the Holy Spirit temporarily, and it went away. Didn't indwell him permanently. And so you have these cases in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit came on prophets, came on kings, but it was temporarily, it was for a season, then went away. This is permanent. This is a game changer. And that brings us back to Acts chapter two. Why the wind? Why the wind? Well, you gotta look at this in John chapter three from the lips of Jesus. He's talking to Nicodemus, the Pharisee, who came to him at night. Excuse me. He says, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. I believe that's talking about the water baptism, baptism of repentance, but also the baptism of the Spirit. Humans can produce, reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants. He uses this metaphor of the wind. And he says, just as you know, just as 
You can hear the wind, but can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. You can't explain how people are born of the spirit. In that room, they heard the wind before they felt the wind. They heard the wind before they experienced the power of the wind. But that wind signified something. It signifies the spirit. And here's what it tells us about the spirit. He's unpredictable. Nobody knows where the wind is going to come from or how it might change. You know, last, uh, this last Tuesday, when I uh, woke up, I checked the news because they had had those grass fires out in Parker County, and they had shut down 20 and 30, and I didn't know if I was going to be able to get out there my normal way. How did that happen? Wind. Now, fire, most certainly, but how did that fire grow? Wind. And I drove out there that morning, and the grass is only really about that tall. And yet they're evacuating schools, homes, businesses, because of the power of the wind to blow that fire and make it spread. It's unpredictable. It's uncontrollable. You can't control the wind. You can use the wind to your benefit, right? Wind turbines, sailboat but you can't control it. It's unstoppable. You can't stop the spirit. There's not a person in that upper room who could have stopped what happened. It was gonna happen. Same thing's true of you and I. We, we can quench the spirit, but we can't stop the spirit. The spirit's gonna do what the spirit's gonna do. He's powerful. He, he is incredibly powerful. When they heard that roar, it probably scared them. It was so loud, it attracted people from the neighborhood. See, he's, he's got incredible power, but for some of us in the room, the Holy Spirit has no power. We get he's unpredictable, he's uncontrollable, he just doesn't have any power. We don't experience him, we don't see him. And we may long to see things like this, but when I read the book of Acts, here's what I see over and over again. The Holy Spirit rarely shows up like this. As a matter of fact, he never shows up quite like this again, but he shows up over and over again. And and in really interesting ways where these incredible coincidences take place, where people just show up and they get an encounter with one of the apostles and they get healed. Those are divine encounters. That's the Holy Spirit moving and directing and guiding. And guys, what I long for you and I to understand is that the Holy Spirit's working in your life. You just don't see it. You just don't recognize it. He's powerful and he's invisible. You can't see him and he's always doing the impossible. That's Jesus' point here to Nicodemus. And we see it lived out in that upper room as this incredible thing takes place. Well, what about the fire? Let's go back to Exodus chapter three. We know that during the Exodus that God led his people all through the wilderness. And, and, but long before that, he led, Mo, he led uh, Abraham. How did he lead Abraham? Well, it starts out with a burning bush, a blazing fire. And the Lord called from the middle of the bush and gave him direction led his life. See, fire 
is a representation of God. And again, you fast forward to chapter 13 and you got God leading the people. How? By a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. That's how he led them. And the scriptures tell us that when they erected the tabernacle, that pillar of fire would descend upon the Ark of the Covenant where the mercy seat sat and it would hover there. And as long as it hovered there, they stayed there. And when it left, they left. They packed up and they followed and it led them. So what does it teach us about the Holy Spirit? God's presence. The Holy Spirit is the presence of God within you and I. When those flames showed up on their heads, the reason it was significant is it showed them God's here. The Spirit's here. They couldn't debate it. They couldn't argue about it. It was visible. It revealed to them God's protection. Because as long as God's around, you're okay. I'm here. It's a form of God's leading. See, one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit in my life and your life is he leads us. But see, what we expect is, okay, then, then lead me. Talk to me. Show me something. We open up our Bible. What, show me a verse. I want to know your will. Write it on the wall. Give me a vision. But see, what I'm learning in my life is that he's leading me in ways that I don't see. And so much of what happens in my life, I think, is happenstance, coincidence, Blind luck, fate, and I know it's the Holy Spirit. God setting up appointments, people bringing into my life that I need, and I don't recognize that that's the Holy Spirit. And there's more of that in the book of Acts than this. The subtle that we need to see in our lives. Well, he's also reveals our position Every one of those people received the same thing. Wouldn't it have been a bummer to be the only one in the room who didn't get the flame? <laughs> you got, you're looking around trying, hey, wait, I, hey, do I have a flame? No. No, Peter, you don't. <sighs> what if it had only gone on the 11 disciples? That'd have been a bummer for everybody else in the room. No, it says it fell on every one of them. And on every one of them, it was a sign of their purification. God, in the form of the Holy Spirit, was indwelling them, coming to live with them and empower them. <coughs> and I want you to, if you take away nothing else, you gotta keep going back to this issue of power that you have in you, this incredible power, power from on high, the very same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. How do I know that? The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, Paul says. Let me read that again. The very same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Now, if that doesn't get your attention or if it doesn't make you go, yeah, but I don't sense it, I don't feel it, the problem lies not with the Holy Spirit. It lies with you and your unwillingness to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. But they all got the same thing. And it would allow them to live truly repentant lives for the first time. 
See, you and I, if we're told, do these things to be a better Christian, we will do our best to do those things and we will fail. But if we understand that it's not the doing of those things that makes you a better Christian, it is the reliance upon the only power you have to live the life you've been called to live. It's constantly going back to the source, the Holy Spirit. I can't do this. I'm weak without him. And what's interesting is this power they received is totally unbiased and unmerited. Nobody deserved it. Nobody got a bigger flame than the other. Nobody got more power than the other. Everybody got the same thing. There is no person in this room who's in Christ who has more of the spirit than anybody else. You may be living more in tune with the spirit or less in tune in obedience to the Spirit, but you all have the same amount of the Spirit. So when the crowds came to John for baptism back in, Acts, back in Luke, he says, you brood of snakes who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, prove by the way you live. Remember, here's what he's saying. You, you wanna get baptized? You better prove by the way you live that you've repented of your sins and turned to God. See, that's a really tough path because what's missing at this point, the Holy Spirit? He couldn't give them the Holy Spirit. He couldn't give them the baptism of fire. He couldn't promise them the power yet because Jesus hadn't started his ministry. Jesus hadn't died. Jesus hadn't been buried. Jesus hadn't resurrected. Jesus hadn't ascended and the Holy Spirit hadn't come. But here we are on the other side of the equation, and we have that power. So he said, guys, don't, don't get cocky. Don't say we're safe for we're descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. I've been to Israel. Israel has two things in prevalence, Jews and stones. Now, when John said this to a group of Jews standing in front of him, he was in the wilderness. What were in the wilderness? Stones. And he goes, hey, don't get cocky because you're a Jew. I, God can make children out of these stones. How do you think that came across? That's cool. No, they went, hey, you jerk. I'm a Jew. I'm a child of God. Don't compare me to a stone. But isn't that what we all are? Without God, we're nothing but stones. We're dead. We're lifeless. We have nothing to bring to the table. We're as value, we have as much value as a stone. But he says, no, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. He's telling them something they don't yet understand, the same thing Jesus would tell the disciples, and they don't yet understand. And we're going to see in the book of Acts, even after the Holy Spirit, they don't quite understand that he's going to make children out of people who are not Jews. Over in Galatians, Paul says, Abraham believed God. God counted him as righteous because of his faith. The real ch children of Abraham then are those who put their faith in God. Not those who are born Jews, but those who believe in God. He tells the Romans, the promise is received by faith. It's given as a free gift. We're all certain to receive it, whether or not we live according to the law of Moses, whether or not we are proselytes to Judaism, whether or not we're born Jews, whether or not we keep the law, whether or not we know the law. If we have faith like Abraham's, for Abraham is the father of all who believe. It's about faith. 
It's not about being a Jew. It's not about the law. It's about faith. Through Jesus Christ, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised Abraham so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit. How? Through faith. Not by changing the way you live, but by faith. Baptism of John, baptism of the Spirit. Two different things. And I'm telling you guys, I know I'm a stone that's been made into a child of God by no effort of my own, by no merit of my own. And I'm okay with that because I know how hard my head is. I know how hard my heart can be. I know how dense I can be at times. And yet he in his grace saved me. So everyone gets the spirit. They all begin speaking in languages as God gave them this ability. And it's an amazing event. And, and, and I'm not gonna go through his sermon. He preaches this incredible sermon and he preaches it to a group of people standing in front of him. And they come from all these places from all over the, the known world at that time. Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, all these places. And Luke goes into great detail to describe where they come from. They're all Gentiles, who are proselytes. They've become Jews. That's why they're there. They came for Pentecost. They came for the Passover. And they're all listening to these people speak in their own languages. See, God is doing something significant. God's opening up this thing to all these people. And that's the story of the book of Acts, as we're going to find out. And they all hear them saying the same thing. They're preaching about the wonderful things that God has done. He doesn't elaborate. He doesn't tell us. But I guarantee it's about the incarnation. It's about the teachings of Jesus. It's about his death. It's about eternal life. It's about faith. It's about the gospel. And they're telling them these things. And they're all blown away by what they hear. They stood amazed. And he preaches this incredible sermon and you can go read it, and you can study it, and it's amazing. He tells them about all these things that Jesus Christ did, and it says that his words pierced their hearts, and they say, what do we do? Sounds familiar. See, they're, they're waiting. Hey, okay, what do we do? What do I need to give up? How do I change? I want this, and, G and he just basically tells them the gospel. It's faith. He tells them, you gotta believe these things. It's Jesus, he's alive, he is who he said he was. He died, he rose again. And he says, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Same thing John said, but he adds something. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You're gonna get the missing ingredient, the power to truly change, the power to truly be different. And it's for you, and it's to your children, and it's to all those far away. That's the gospel. That's the story of Acts. All who have been called by the Lord our God. So here's what they had to believe real quickly. This is, this is what he preaches. Jesus is the son of God. His works have been done according to the will of God. His death had been preordained by God. He was raised back to life by the spirit of God. This is what he preached in that sermon. He sent the Spirit to indwell his followers. No, we're not drunk. We have the Spirit. And he offers forgiveness of sins to all who will believe these things. Just believe. Believe. 
So here's your discussion questions. And, and, and they're kind of basic. When you read about the Holy Spirit, the coming of the Holy Spirit, you've read it before, you just read it again. What's the one thing that jumps out at you? What's, what's the one part of that story that always grabs you? Maybe it's the tongues, maybe it's the languages, maybe, you know, whatever it is, just talk about that briefly. Then after hearing the lesson, what do you think Luke's real point is? Is it the tongues? Is it the flames? Is it the wind? Those are significant, but what's his real point? And why do you think it's important? Then finally, take some time to discuss why you think Luke spent so much time in detail articulating and writing down that multi-ethnic makeup of that group. Why is that so important? I'll give you a hint. Look around the room. We wouldn't be here. See, the story of Acts is the story of the gospel getting past the 11, past the 120, past the Jews, out into Judea, into Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And guess what? It's still the story for today, getting the message out. Father, I pray that you be with these guys. I pray you bless the time around the tables. I pray that you would uh, encourage their conversation, make it rich, make it deep, make it honest, open, loving, gracious, and kind. And may you continue your work in our lives so that we might truly know what it is to live in the power of the Spirit of God. Amen. Have fun.